Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about pancreatic cancer with Dr. Jeremy Kortmansky. Dr. Kortmansky is an associate professor of clinical medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Jeremy, you know, I think we we all hear about pancreatic cancer when it affects celebrities, right? Um, so, uh, whether it was uh, Steve Jobs or uh, you know other uh, uh, other stars, um, we hear about pancreatic cancer kind of once in a blue moon. It doesn't seem to be a terribly common cancer. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about how frequently pancreatic cancer is diagnosed? How how many people get it, um, and who really are the people that it most affects? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, you know, pancreatic cancer is actually uh, becoming a increasingly more common cancer that we see. Uh, it's now the fifth leading cause of cancer in the United States uh, at about 60,000 new cases a year. Uh, so we're, we're not only seeing uh, increasing numbers, uh, but also really moving up the rank of, of how often we see it. Uh, and, you know, it, it's interesting you brought up uh, Steve Jobs and, and other celebrities. Most recently, I think Alec Trebek is one. Uh, and it, it's important to make distinctions that when we talk about pancreatic cancer, there's, there's two main types. Uh, there is pancreatic adenocarcinoma, which is by far the, the more common one. That is, that is the disease that we are talking about when we think about 60,000 cases per year. Uh, and then there are pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, which are a lot less common. They're only seen in a few thousand patients a year. And, and th those two diseases, it's important to make the distinction because they behave very differently and their treatments are very different. So, so let's start with pancreatic adenocarcinoma because I think that most people, when they use the term generically, pancreatic cancer, that, that tends to be what they're referring to, although your point is well taken with regards to neuroendocrine tumors. But, but tell us a little bit more about who gets these cancers. I mean, what are the risk factors? So I think... I think like other cancers, uh, smoking is a common risk factor. Uh, it can be related to problems that cause chronic inflammation of the pancreas. So uh, alcoholism uh, can lead to pancreas cancer. Uh, chronic gallstone disease can, although that's much less common. Uh, obesity can be a risk factor as well. And then there is some question of the relationship with diabetes and whether diabetes could be a risk factor or whether the disease itself causes the diabetes. And that's something that's still uh, being worked out. Uh, and then there is a, a smaller percentage of patients uh, where it's uh, a hereditary cancer. There are some 
genetic abnormalities that we know of that are associated with pancreas cancer. And uh, one that is uh, of recent importance uh, is its relation to the BRCA gene, which is a gene that we most often think about with breast and ovarian cancer syndromes, uh, but is also related to pancreas cancer as well. Uh, and that has had some recent implications on treatment. So, you know, when we think about these risk factors, I'm thinking about um, a very good friend of mine who actually was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, just over Thanksgiving and who didn't fit any of those categories. Um, She had no family history. She is skinny like a rail. She doesn't have diabetes, doesn't drink, um, doesn't have gallstones. You know, in in those people where, you know, they don't seem to have any of the the common risk factors that you think about for pancreatic cancer, does that tell us anything about the biology of their disease? I mean, are there other things that we can think of uh, in terms of their risk factors? And and how does that or does it um, have anything to do with their prognosis? I think that um, those are all very good questions. Uh, I, you know, there are risk factors that we can identify, and then there are patients who get cancer for really no good reason. Uh, and you know, those are people that we are still trying to maybe figure out whether there was something hereditary or environmental or some other factor that we just haven't identified yet that that played a role. When it comes to yeah. pancreas cancer, the uh, the implications of how you got it, um, except in in certain circumstances like the BRCA gene, but but otherwise, how you got it doesn't play as much of a role into how we might think about treating it or how we might expect it to behave. So the the other question um, is. You know, do we have for pancreatic cancer, I mean, is when you talk about it being the fifth most common cancer, and we think about the list, right, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, for all of these more commonly diagnosed cancers, there's a screening test. We can find these cancers early. Um, Is there a screening test for pancreatic cancer? There isn't a good test or routine screening test for pancreas cancer. Uh, I think that uh, we know that there are some patients that have been discovered to have either a family history or patients that have been found to have pancreatic cysts uh, on their on, on imaging that may have been obtained for some other reason that we can follow. And, and certainly here at Yale, we have... Uh, an excellent screening program uh, where we can refer uh, patients to our gastroenterologists who can perform screening procedures. But that's really identifying those who are already at a heightened risk and not for the, the whole population like we think about with colonoscopies for colon cancer or mammograms for breast cancer. It's really a a already predetermined population because the screening includes much more advanced or invasive testing 
like MRIs or endoscopic ultrasounds. So it, it's a much more complex way to follow patients. And so without a screening test for asymptomatic people who otherwise, you know, haven't had any abnormality that's been found incidentally on imaging, what are what are the ways in which they present? I, I mean, how how is it that they finally somebody cues into the fact that, oh, my gosh, this could be a pancreatic cancer? What are the symptoms and signs to look for? I, again, I think this is an area that becomes challenging, that the, the symptoms that people have, at least initially, uh, can often be vague. Uh, they can be some discomfort in the abdomen with, with eating, uh, sometimes increased belching uh, or increased gas uh, may be a symptom, things that are very easily attributable to, to something else. Uh, until the symptoms become more significant. Sometimes people present without any symptoms but develop jaundice in that they're, uh, they notice yellowing of their eyes or their skin, uh, which certainly tips off them, their families, that there's something going on that requires further evaluation. Uh, but because these symptoms can sometimes be vague, they can also be attributed to the much more common problems that we see, irritable bowel or reflux, uh, which can lead to delays in making a, a diagnosis. And so, I mean, that really gets to the crux of the issue, right, is that, you know, without screening and with um, uh, symptoms that are, are incredibly vague, um, I would surmise that the vast majority of patients who present with pancreatic cancer present at a, a, a more advanced stage. So, so talk to us a little bit about the stage distribution that you see um, in terms of the proportion of patients who present with early versus late stage disease and what the implications are in terms of prognosis. So when I think about pancreas cancer and and people often think about staging for cancer with the usual stage one, two, three, or four. When I think about pancreas cancer, I really try to think about it in terms of its clinical presentations. And so there are patients that have resectable disease, meaning that a surgeon could go in there at the time of diagnosis and, and take it out. There are patients that have locally advanced but unresectable disease, meaning that it hasn't spread to other parts of the body, but it's involving the nearby blood vessels and you can't safely take it out. And then patients with metastatic disease where it's spread to other places in the body. And so the, the number or the percentage of patients that can have surgery at the time of their diagnosis is really only about 15 to 20%. It's a relatively low number. And the other 80% sort of evenly distributed are either locally advanced or metastatic disease at the time of their, uh, their diagnosis. Yeah. And so it was with my, my, my friend um, who uh, was diagnosed with a, a locally advanced unresectable pancreatic cancer that was encasing important blood vessels. So current certainly wasn't a, a candidate um, for surgery at the time of her presentation. So, uh, so it sounds like if patients are 
you know, fortunate enough to be resectable at the time of their presentation, would surgery be the primary modality up front? That is a great question and one that we are still trying to figure out. Uh, I think that there is clearly a standard paradigm of doing surgery followed by chemotherapy for about six months afterwards. There is a lot of interest in giving chemotherapy prior to surgery uh, or giving part of the chemotherapy, then surgery, and then chemotherapy after. And in fact, uh, here at, at, at Smilo, we have a clinical trial, which is really looking at that question of perioperative chemotherapy. How do patients do getting some of the, tr the chemotherapy treatments before surgery and then some after, and how that might compare to those who get surgery first and then chemotherapy later? And so this kind of brings us to the question of, well, how effective is the chemotherapy? Because, you know, I can imagine that many of the people who are listening to this show are thinking, you know, if I have a cancer and you can take this cancer out and you can um, get it out of my body, uh, you know, for, for many people, the, the simple logic is that that might be better than having a chemotherapy, which may or may not uh, work. Um, and they often have some trepidation about cancer spreading um, and then making it unresectable. Um, so how effective is chemotherapy um, that we could potentially use it in a neoadjuvant fashion to potentially even shrink the cancer and get some systemic control prior to resecting it? So our newer chemotherapy regimens uh, are, are good. They're not great, uh, but they are good. Uh, and they can shrink the disease for some and control the microscopic disease that might be floating around for others. I, I think that the challenge ultimately is that even with surgery, the risk of pancreatic cancer coming back because it has already shed these microscopic cells is very high. And so by giving chemotherapy, we are hopefully attacking some of those microscopic cells that are floating around, but also making sure that putting somebody through what would be a very major operation is, is ultimately the right thing to do. Yeah. So, so many uh, complicating moving parts uh, in the management of pancreatic cancer. And we're going to learn much more about all of that right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about pancreatic cancer with my guest, Dr. Jeremy Kortmansky. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. 
And in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I am joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jeremy Kortmansky. We're talking about pancreatic cancer, and Jeremy, right before the break, you had indicated to us that you really think about pancreatic cancer in terms of staging as whether things are resectable uh, at the time of presentation or unresectable but not metastatic or metastatic. And and sadly, 80% of patients or so fall into the last two buckets. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really unfortunate because what is the prognosis for patients who have locally advanced unresectable disease at presentation? And what is the prognosis for patients who present with metastatic disease? For those patients who have advanced disease, unfortunately, we view those as incurable cancers. We can't make it go away and never come back. For patients that have locally advanced disease on occasion, uh, and it's not the expectation, but on occasion, they they have a, a great response to the chemotherapy and we can revisit that question of uh, surgery. Uh, but without surgery, uh, ultimately patients succumb to their disease and, and the goals of our treatment are to uh, control the disease for as long as possible, help people live as long as possible and feel as well as possible, knowing that uh, the disease can be symptomatic as well. And so, you know... For for people who are listening to this and who may have had friends or, or even seen celebrities go through their own journeys um, with pancreatic cancer, you know, it, when we say we the goal is really to try to control the cancer for as long as possible and, and the quality of life for as long as possible, in some cancers, um, and we've discussed this on this show as well, for some cancers, medical management has come really a long way such that even in those settings, um, you know, people live for a long time and, and they talk about this being incurable, but really making it more of a chronic disease um, than, than something that is imminently fatal. Where are we in the spectrum of pancreatic cancer towards getting to, you know, okay, so I've got pancreatic cancer and I know that I can't get rid of it, but, but, you know, I can, I can live with it versus this is something that, you know, is more of an imminent uh, concern. It's still a very challenging disease. And uh, there are, for a lot of other cancers, a lot of exciting new therapies and, and targeted therapies and, and immunotherapies that have become available. Uh, but for pancreas cancer, the majority of patients are still treated with versions of chemotherapy. And those, those chemotherapy drugs are, are modest. Uh, there are some who are exceptional responders, people who do really well for a long time. But 
for the majority of patients, uh, the survival is is still only measured in in months or years, uh, and and doing better and finding better therapies is of such great importance for this disease. I think we are really hoping and, and trying every day to find therapies that are better than what we have currently. Do we have any factors that can predict who is going to respond better to chemotherapy versus not? So we are still trying to figure that out. I think when we, and I had mentioned this earlier, uh, patients that have a uh, BRCA mutation or a similar type mutation, uh, we we find that they are uh, more sensitive to platinum-based chemotherapy, so a drug like oxaliplatin or cisplatin, uh, and that uh, we can see better responses there that can sometimes last longer than we might see with uh, a patient who doesn't have one of those abnormalities. Uh, we know uh, that there is a class of drugs called the PARP inhibitors, uh, which for this BRCA mutated population uh, can benefit from this targeted therapy. At the end of the day, that only makes up about 7% of the patients that we see. Uh, so it's still not a, not a big number. Uh, and we know about 1% have another abnormality called microsatellite instability, uh, for which immunotherapy drugs have been helpful. And so we always test for that. But again, it's one out of 100 that we see. So the majority of the patients uh, that we take care of uh, are still treated similarly with these more generic chemotherapy programs uh, with a strong emphasis in trying to encourage uh, patients to participate in, in clinical trials that can help us move the field. And so, and I want to get into the clinical trials in a minute, but before we get there, if you're treated with standard chemotherapy and and all of the side effects that go along with that, knowing that you know you're you've presented with a locally advanced unresectable or metastatic uh, cancer, what what is really the efficacy of these chemotherapies? I mean, how do patients? balance the risk and the benefit of the therapy? I mean, is this something that for some patients, the, the therapy is is worse than the disease itself? Or are these actually things that are tolerable with uh, more modern day uh, treatments and, and uh, additional factors that you can give patients? And that has really been shown to make a difference in terms of both survival and quality of life. My job is to make the make the treatments tolerable. When we we pick a regimen, we and there are two common regimens that we use. Uh, we are already thinking about what are the the side effects that are associated with those regimens, and whether the patient uh, who's about to receive it is going to be able to tolerate it based on their age, other medical problems uh, that they may have. And, and when we give the treatments, we, we dose them very carefully and we pay attention to those side effects to make adjustments in the dosing 
or give supportive medications to really make it as tolerable as we can. It, it's it's never a desired situation that the treatment is worse than than the disease. Uh, and and the reality is is that for the vast majority of patients, when they do start feeling poorly, it's more often the disease than it is the treatments. Uh, but we make sure we see patients every time before they get their treatments to review the side effects and, and give the right medications and give the supportive medications or dose adjustments that we need to do. And and how do we know that the chemotherapy is working? Many patients ask about, well, are, are you going to do more blood work? Are there tumor markers? Uh, you know, um, how do you know? Because you had mentioned that for some patients, you know, who present without metastatic disease, but that is unresectable, that potentially in some of those patients, you can reassess whether they may be candidates for resection. The, the best way to follow the disease is with imaging. So usually a CAT scan. Uh, sometimes a, an MRI or a PET scan, but usually a CAT scan gives us the level of detail that we need, uh, including the relationship of the tumor to the vessels uh, nearby for those who have locally advanced disease. And there is a tumor marker uh, that we can use as well called CA199 uh, that uh, can be helpful, although sometimes is not as reliable as the, the scans. And then also really listening to the patient. Uh, patients can have symptoms that can be a tip-off that something is getting better or getting worse, even before a CAT scan tells you what's going on. And and um, and so, you know, back to the story of, of my friend, she had chemotherapy, as you suggested, and her tumor markers went down, which was great. But the imaging still showed that she had unresectable um, disease. And, you know, she was quite happy to be done with chemo um, and and really didn't want to, to do much more, but was certainly interested in clinical trials. So let's, let's talk ab- about clinical trials, both in that setting after, you know, you, you don't respond to standard chemotherapy, as well as clinical trials that might be offered to patients up front as new therapies are developed. So what are you most excited about? I think it's interesting that you say that. I find that when I start talking to a patient about a clinical trial, sometimes they say to me, do you think I'm I'm ready for a clinical trial? Uh, As if it's something that we wait until we don't have other options. And Clinical trials are important at every phase of someone's disease, whether they are initially diagnosed or whether they have uh, progressed on one or two prior therapies. We are always trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. And so the clinical trials that we are working on uh, that we're excited about. I, I think we are still trying to find a role for immunotherapy in uh, pancreas cancer, the same as in uh, other diseases like lung cancer or melanoma. Uh, but it's been a challenge. And so we are doing clinical trials that are looking at immunotherapy combinations as opposed to just a single drug uh, to see if it might be 
might be better. We're looking at uh, clinical trials that are trying to attack not just the tumor itself, but the, the scar tissue and the environment around the cancer cells. One of the challenging things about pancreas cancer is that it almost builds this protective shell around itself that can potentially make it more difficult for our treatments to get in. And so looking at drugs that can potentially uh, eat away at that might help our uh, more standard therapies be more effective. Dr. Jeremy Kortmansky is an associate professor of clinical medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.